This is The Guardian. I'm Jane Lee, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is the full story. Just listen to our friends from Pakistan just now, how the country was ravaged by floods. It breaks your heart to listen to it. In the final hours of this year's International Climate Summit, COP27, a deal was struck. Or to those in the line of monster storms in the Pacific or the Caribbean, they deserve our support for the loss and damage they face, but they also deserve our higher ambition to avoid repeat episodes. Some of the world's biggest polluting countries will now set up a fund that pays for the loss and damage the climate crisis is causing to the most vulnerable countries. It's a major victory for developing countries which are already feeling the brunt of climate disasters. So the argument has been, why should the developing world have to pay the cost of this damage caused by the advancement of the developed countries? The fund was the one bright light in the conference, which has left the goal of limiting global heating to 1.5 degrees hanging by a thread. So what could this loss and damage fund look like and how much hope should we take from this deal? Today, climate and environment editor Adam Morton on who's paying the bill for climate disasters. It's Monday the 28th of November. So, Adam, towards the end of COP27, the European Commission's Vice President, Franz Timmermans, got up and made an announcement, which I think was a big turning point in the conference. You were in Egypt at the time reporting on it. Can you tell me what happened at that moment? Timmermans got up on behalf of the European Commission at a really fraught moment where it wasn't clear whether there'd be any agreement on this issue of a loss and damage fund. Last night, our talks have stalled. Many parties, too many parties, are not ready to make more progress today in the fight against the climate crisis. So loss and damage refers to the severe impact of climate fueled extreme weather on the physical and social infrastructure of vulnerable countries and the financial assistance that they'll need to rescue and rebuild after them. And Timmermans said and surprised nearly everybody by saying that the European Union had changed its position and would support the creation of a loss and damage response fund. A number of parties who, for us, are very important, keep insisting that all they want is a fund. So then we thought, okay, if that is the only way we're going to get an agreement here in Chalmersheik, we can live with a fund, we can propose a fund. Geared towards the most vulnerable countries and helping them with climate catastrophes they're already experiencing and will experience in the future. This was a significant breakthrough at a point of um, major disagreement at that point in the talks. What were the major disagreements between the countries on the idea of a loss and damage fund? One of the real issues was while there are existing bodies that could provide some money, none of them can be called on immediately at the time of disaster. The position from developed countries accepted in support of the general principle was we've got a lot of funds, we've got international banks, we've got climate funds. Do we really need another one, another layer of bureaucracy? Can we use the existing models we have? And that was a real point of disagreement. Even when Franz Timmerman said, yes, we will support work on a fund, he said, we don't think this is the best model necessarily. We're not sure we need an, a new body, but we have heard the developing world. This is a line in the sand for them. And so therefore, this is the path we'll go down. But we need to, within that, we need to look at all the potential sources of funding 
um, and that w- and will have to mean actually drawing on other existing bodies. This really followed decades of work and urging and calls from the developing world for this fund to be created. And all of that work that led up to this kind of climaxed in this moment that really pushed things forward. Hmm. So why have developing countries been pushing for this fund for so long? Why is this issue of loss and damage so important? It's been a long-fought issue that really began with a push that I think began with Vanuatu. And Vanuatu's climate minister, Ralph Regan Vanu, has spoken to us about this. You know, Vanuatu has the most vulnerable country in the world, according to the World Risk Index. We are already experiencing loss and damage, and we are already paying for loss and damage. And for a long time, the developed world has really resisted this idea that it should have to pay compensation or reparations. Most of the developed countries have basically dismissed loss and damage as something that is not even something to talk about, not even an agenda item that should be discussed. A long time point by developing countries is that they already were and would increasingly be experiencing damage to their social and physical infrastructure from climate catastrophes. And these catastrophes are fueled by rising greenhouse gas emissions that are no fault of the developing world. These are emissions released by rich countries who have increased their wealth on the back of being able to pump out all these emissions and by using fossil fuels. Many examples already of the sorts of events that would um, need to be dealt with through this fund. Um, We're seeing damage in the countries in the Pacific, like Fiji and Kiribati, villages and towns having to escape rising sea levels, food crops being lost, damage to infrastructure, damage to lives. We're seeing devastating cyclones that have been fueled by increasing emissions. And in fact, at the conference, we heard from Kiribati's president, Taneti Mamu, who said there is no safe place for his country's people anymore. Um, And this is what developed countries have agreed here and the world has agreed that there is the need for a dedicated Mm. fund that will deal with these issues. The sorts of loss and damage we're talking about here, Adam, sounds huge. How much money are we talking about in this type of a fund? We don't know yet. There are estimates that give us a rough guide. Uh, One estimate about the annual cost of climate disasters has put it at $200 billion US globally already. But that's not just vulnerable developing countries. Experts at the London School of Economics recently suggested that future losses could be up to $300 billion by 2030. So we're talking large sums that will just keep getting larger if we don't cut emissions. And if loss and damage has been discussed in these international climate talks for decades, as you say, Why did it become such a big focus of this latest COP? The significant rise we've seen in devastating events just reached a tipping point where the developed world couldn't be seen to be ignoring anymore. A really major event this year with the devastating floods we saw in Pakistan, which put a third of the country's habitable land underwater, affected 33 million people. Estimates of the costs are at US $30 billion in damage. It will have ramifications that will flow through for years, uh, through lifetimes. Um, we have no immediate response mechanism internationally to help a country like that at the moment. And that really sharpened the focus leading into the talks in Egypt. Uh, and Pakistan had a really effective voice at the talks making this case. Its climate minister, Sherry Rahman, was a really quietly powerful advocate for change. 
So we are just, we are affected 30 billion dollars loss and damage, ladies and gentlemen, just from this flood. So if you want to hear from the front lines, this is the voice of the lost. This is the voice of the damaged. And a united, a strong argument within the G77 block of developing countries that this needed to be that moment. When one ecosystem goes down or starts dying, that is the law of nature. It starts taking down the next one and the next one in the next one. So what went on in Pakistan, ladies and gentlemen, will not stay in Pakistan. To be fair, there are also voices within the developed world that acknowledge that and supported it being part of discussions. But exactly how that would be framed was not agreed until the very last minute. And I guess the case for it, particularly given the events that have been seen over the past 12 months, really made it undeniable in the end. So, Adam, let's get into the details of what was actually ultimately agreed to in this proposal. What do we know about what the fund could look like? We know that rich countries uh, within the European Union and including the US and the UK and Australia have agreed in principle to set up a fund for the most vulnerable and that funding will have to come from a variety of sources. So it's not just them coughing up the money, but the rest of it is pretty broad at this stage. One of the other sources that we're going to see a lot of work on over the next 12 months will be what can come from the multilateral development banks. There's a strong case being made that the World Bank is not fit for purpose at the moment, that it does not factor in climate change properly in the loans it gives, and it should be very much geared to dealing with a world in which we are going to see climate catastrophes. Um, And Chris Bowen from Australia was one of the people making that case very strongly, but not alone by any means. The other thing we have to find out is whether other countries that have long been considered developing countries, but which are now more established and huge emitters in their own right, such as China and petrostates like Saudi Arabia and Russia, will have to contribute. Now, they haven't agreed to that, and the language in the agreement in Egypt was left ambiguous. And quite where they fit within these talks remains unclear, but there is, I think, a growing push within parts of the genuine developing countries, the most vulnerable countries, to see those emerging economies as not so much allies of the developing world, but countries that need to be held to account and need to step up. The developed world strongly believes they need to contribute and how they thrash that out over Mm. the period ahead will be key. Um, How long could it take for this fund to be up and running, Adam? So uh, the idea is to have something operational within two years and the developing world would like it to be sooner. A committee has been set up or is being set up to work on it and is expected to come back with proposals in a year's time at the next um, COP, the next climate summit in Dubai. Um, And the hope is that the differences between countries can be dealt with swiftly and something might be operational the following year. Now, I'm not saying I think that's likely. I think that's Mm. optimistic, but that's the hope. So, Adam, how did developing countries respond to the the agreement on this proposal? Uh, With great relief, and there was an outpouring of emotion, really. And it has been so long coming. And the word that got thrown around a lot was historic, that this was a real breakthrough. And Ralph Regan-Varnu has also reflected on what the outcome on loss and damage meant. It was a great relief, you know, because uh, it was important for us for that recognition to take place, uh, the civil recognition that there is a need for this this facility or this fund. And the fact that 
that was explicitly stated in the outcomes of COP is a, is a great achievement. What's happened over the last uh, 30 years or so is that more and more it's become an agenda that more and more countries recognize as reality, uh, same as Vanuatu. Mm. And I think that's what got us over the line uh, this time. Pakistan's climate minister, Sherry Rahman, made the very important point, I think, that it wasn't about accepting charity, which is about how just how it's been described in some places. She said it was a down payment on an investment in the future of these countries and about climate justice, which is an issue we don't hear a lot about in Australia, but I think we're going to hear about more and more. So Molwen Joseph, who um, is Minister from Antigua and Barbuda and the chair of AOSIS, the um, Alliance of Small Island States, said it was important in a bunch of ways, but chief among them that it restored global faith in the UN talks on climate and suggested that you know there was possible to have outcomes that were dedicated to ensuring no one is left behind, which is not something that these talks have really succeeded at over the years. So for these countries, it was really a monumental moment while acknowledging mm. a lot of the heavy lifting is still to come. There are clearly huge power imbalances between developing and developed countries at these international climate talks. What does this kind of agreement tell us about how this dynamic is changing? What it is telling us is that after long being really neglected beyond, you know, sort of passing nods to what they're going through, the developing world is being seen as having a greater stake in these talks, I think. Mm. This was a real win, particularly um, for the group known as AOSIS, which is the Alliance of Small Island States. This includes a vast range of types of countries, but, you know, Pacific nations, for example, we hear a lot and have for a long time at these talks about the need to support them, but we haven't really seen the action on it as required. We may still not, but this was a breakthrough moment for them. Next, Australia's changing role in international climate talks. Adam, this was the first COP that Australia has attended under the new Labor government. Does Australia's conduct at COP27, including its support for this fund, signal that Australia's reputation as a laggard on climate change is now shifting? Yes, I think absolutely it does. But it was really quite striking the extent to which moving around the talks, you would hear from different people that how much they welcomed Australia being back as a constructive player after years of being seen as a laggard under the Morrison government. And that was, if not universal, a, a strongly across the board view that uh, Chris Bowen, the minister and the delegation were warmly received by uh, its Pacific neighbours, a number of other countries. John Kerry from the US was really effusive in his praise. Ralph Riganvanu said it was a breath of fresh air after the previous era. So, yeah, they, it definitely a big change. And I guess that was kind of underlined by Chris Bowen being asked to co-lead a stream of the negotiations on climate finance to try and wrangle agreement on that point. And that definitely wasn't happening under the previous government. On the other hand, it's important to say that while Labor's uh, targets and policies are a significant improvement on what came before, they don't yet... Uh, go far enough to live up to 
the government's rhetoric and Chris Bowen's rhetoric about aiming for 1.5 degrees. Bowen made a really strong case in Egypt that 1.5 degrees must remain the goal. He said, well, if we're not aiming for 1.5, what are we even here for? Well, the government's targets aren't yet 1.5 degrees compatible. And they came to the conference without new commitments on climate finance or money for loss and damage. And we remain one of the world's big fossil fuel exporters. So we really are going to need to address those things to live up to the rhetoric. But at this stage, you know, it has been broadly accepted that these things don't happen overnight and that Australia is acting with goodwill. Um, One thing it should be uh, is really important here is the attitude of the Pacific. I think the government has gone out of its way to forge a close relationship with Pacific countries and wants to host a COP in 2026 in partnership with the Pacific and seems very well placed to do that. It hasn't yet been finalised, but they would be favourites at this point. And if they want to win support to host that event and withstand the extra scrutiny that will come with that, both from Pacific countries and globally, we're going to need to see a difference between now and then on what Australia's commitments are on all those fronts. Ralph Riggin-Vanu made it clear that his country wants to see a real change from Australia on fossil fuels. I'd like to see some clear commitments about stopping fossil fuel subsidies, some clear decisions on not approving new fossil fuel projects. I think that's something we we, we expect to see from Australia before next COP, some clarity on, on those issues. There's been statements made of intent. We need some detail so that we we are, we are confident that that intention is being um, turned into reality. Adam, many commentators have said that COP27 was a failure because we didn't see oil-rich countries agree that oil and gas needs to go, and there were real attempts to get rid of the global commitment to limiting global heating to 1.5 degrees over pre-industrial levels. But as you say, the agreement to a loss and damage fund is still a huge victory. But does it really matter in light of all of this? I mean, are we just treating the symptoms of climate change without addressing their underlying cause? Well, it potentially matters even more if they can find a way to fund it, because while we're not doing enough to cut emissions globally, which we're not, the loss and damage is going to be that much worse. We're not addressing the underlying cause enough. There has been some progress through these talks over time and independent of them to reduce emissions and make commitments beyond what would have happened otherwise. And I think it's important to say that they're just nothing like enough. It's an incremental process. This should really focus the minds on the need to cut emissions, even if for only self-interested reasons from the developed world and the emerging economies who should be saddling up for this too. If you're not going to actually address the principal cause of this problem, at its source and reduce fossil fuel use dramatically in the short term, you're going to be paying much, much greater sums indefinitely to help vulnerable countries who are getting pulverised by climate catastrophe. Thanks to Environment Editor Adam Morton and Vanuatu's Climate Minister Ralph Reagan Vanu for their time. If you'd like to find out more about what happened at the latest International Climate Summit, Adam broke down the biggest developments from COP27 in an article called Australia's New Approach Was a Rare Positive at COP27, But Now the Need for Action is All the More Acute. We'll post it on the Full Story website. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria and myself, sound design and mixing by Camilla Hannon. 
The executive producers of Full Story are Gabrielle Jackson, Molly Glassie and Laura Murphy-Oates. I'm Jane Lee. Thanks for listening.